Thank you again for being here, everyone. Um, we are finishing up a message series, and if you're new to our church, uh, this is basically what we do. We preach, or I preach, in a series, and so <clears throat> we will take a topic. I don't know. Is this spreading now? Am I getting a Batman voice, too? <clears throat> we take a topic, and we talk about it for a number of weeks until we've exhausted the topic or until you're sick of hearing about it, and so today is part six of a six-part series that we've been calling The Truth About Church, and this is a message series all about church and the truth about church and as a of what we are supposed to be, who we are supposed to be, and what we are supposed to be about. And so we do message series like this to remind us of who we are, who we're created to be, and the work that we've been called and created to do. My goal in this series is for us as one local church to get better at being a local church, to get closer toward the ideal of what a church was always supposed to be. Another way to think about it is, I want us to get healthier as a church. Be spiritually healthy and mature, healthy as a church. Now, this is such a great and exciting time that we're in right now, right? I mean, post-pandemic stuff and this whole virus, it's getting weaker and weaker and, and less harmful as time goes on. There's so much excitement in the air right now. Even if you're not a sports fan, there's a lot to be excited about, right? It's contagious. I'm not a big sports guy, but it's like, yeah, Phillies, yeah, Eagles, let's go, right? It's an exciting time, and you look at what's going on in our church, and we've got such a wonderful lineup. I keep saying we've got the A-team and great people and leadership, great things going on. You take a look at your bulletin, all the service opportunities, so much to be excited about. Look at all the small group opportunities, so much to be excited about, and I really am excited. This is a great, great, fantastic time. And over the years, I have learned to engage in this discipline of looking at the good stuff, focusing on the positive, celebrating the positive. And I think that's part of my job as pastor, is to highlight, look at all the good. It's working. Look at what's happening. Look at all the positive. But I do feel like there's something I need to address, friends. We have been through a lot. That's an understatement, isn't it? And when I say we... I'm not just talking about us as one local church, not just our community, but we, humankind, have been through a lot recently. We've been through a pandemic. You know, there are people that have lost their jobs, people who are struggling financially, people who don't know how they're ever going to recover. There are people in our congregation suffering with the long-term symptoms of the long COVID. You know, we've lost people to this virus. People have died. You know, my mom passed from COVID earlier this year. We've been through a truly traumatic experience as a church, as a community, as humankind. We have been through a lot recently. And so I do want to focus on all the positive. Isn't it great to be here? Isn't it great to be past all this? But, but there's been some trauma. Let's not pretend. Let's not pretend. This has been a traumatic time for us. Now, our church is unique in that we, we entered into this whole pandemic situation during a period of transition, right? We were leaving our old location and moving into a new location, and that in and of itself can be a traumatic transition, right? And statistically speaking, whenever you change a location from one place to another, you are going to lose people along the way because they like the old place better or whatever it is, and so we were doing this while the pandemic was going on, and so we had this, this trauma on top of what was already a season of trial. So we have this transition, we have these, these new challenges, and so I'm not going to overlook all the positives of where we are right now, but in my effort to highlight those positives, 
I can't ignore the trauma that we've been through, all of us. All of us have our pandemic stories. And maybe you've struggled more than others, but we all have our pandemic stories, and we've all been through a lot. The Barna Group did a study, and according to that study, one-third, one-third of all Christians left their church during the pandemic. Goodness gracious. One-third of all connected Christians who are part of a local congregation, they left their church during the pandemic. And as the pastor of Hope Community Church, here's what I want for us as a local church. I want us to be exceptional, right? And I think you want that too. I don't want us to fall into these patterns and these statistics, but unfortunately, unfortunately, we fell into that pattern as well. During the pandemic, we lost about a third of our membership. One of the things I want to clarify for you today is that um, I have felt that loss as your pastor. I have felt that pain. You know, when I stand up on Sunday morning to give the message, like I pull it together, right? And I leave my tears behind when I come up here and speak to you all. But there was a period of time earlier in the pandemic where there wasn't a day that went by where I wasn't shedding tears over, over that loss. So, um, in light of this loss, uh, a few of you who are here today have asked me the question of why. Why would someone leave their church family, right? Why would someone leave their church family? Because we are a community church. In a community church, ideally, you get wrapped up in each other's lives. You get to know each other. And maybe you're not best friends with every single person in the congregation, but you're in each other's lives. And so when someone leaves a community church, you're going to notice, right? If you just went to a big auditorium and it's just a bunch of faceless people and you don't know them and you show up and you're like, hey, there's a guy that used to sit down there and he's not there anymore. That's different than what we went through. We lost people that we know and love and care about, members of our church family. And you have asked me, why? Why would someone leave their church family? So I'm going to attempt to answer that question today. The last church that I was a part of, I started under difficult circumstances, better things, and he just wanted to do some other ministry stuff, and, and so what I found out was that he kind of was pushed out the door, right? So this guy was pushed out the door, and here I am naive, hey, I'm here, everybody, and I didn't know, I didn't know, right? I didn't know what I was getting into. And so apparently there was a lot of hurt feelings in that church, and there's a lot of people who didn't know what they were going to do. Should we stay? Should we go? Should we leave? They were really upset about this, this guy, the former pastor, being pushed out the door. And so here I am, and it's not my fault, and I'm the new guy, and, and what I'm seeing is people leaving. And it was tough not to take that personally, right? So my mentor at the time, he said, listen, you've got to think of it this way. People leave churches all the time, every day, for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are ridiculous. Some of them are valid. Think about the best churches that you can imagine, the biggest, the brightest, the most powerful leaders, the most powerful pastors. You think about North Point Church where Andy Stanley is the pastor or Redeemer Presbyterian where Tim Keller used to pastor. And every day, people are leaving those churches. So he said, don't take it personally. This comes with the territory. People leave. And that's great. And that's wonderful. And that's wise. And I agree with that. But it's really tough. <laughs> it's tough not to take it, not to take it personally. Let's... Um, Let's take a look at this passage in our Bible. It's John chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, or if it's on your phone, you could open it up. 
As we've been making our way through the series, I've been uh, highlighting for you the fact that Jesus in his ministry, he did not pander to anyone. Jesus is filled with both grace and truth because you need to be filled with both grace and truth if you're going to love people. And Jesus was rejected by the religious community and eventually by the irreligious community as well because there were truthers that wanted him to be all about truth and there were gracers that wanted him to be all about grace, but he was filled with both and his being filled with both is what led to his ultimate rejection by both the religious and the irreligious community. Of course, after the resurrections, things changed, but during his ministry before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, there was this, this pattern that we see in the ministry of Jesus. What we see is when he begins, there's, there's a rapid increase of followers. There's this pretty quick growth. Then, as we get closer and closer to the cross, those followers steadily decline. So let's take a look at this passage, John 6. If, you, uh, if you're like me, if you had to go to church as a kid, if you were a Sunday school kid, uh, you might be familiar with part of John 6. Um, but when I was a kid, there are certain sections of John 6 that they kind of glossed over, right? And so we're going to take a look <clears throat> at what Scripture says here. John chapter 6. Sometime after this, verse 1, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs, and it opened up their minds. I added that part. That's, uh, that's Ace of Base, actually. This is why you should read along, because I just make things up along the way. You never know. Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now, a sign, you come across that term sign, miracle, wonder, but that term sign is significant because a sign is an indicator. It points to something. They saw signs that this Jesus was more than just a man, and so they followed him. Verse 3, then Jesus went on the mountainside, and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, one of his disciples, So where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had a mind what he was going to do. So Jesus is setting a stage for another sign, a miracle. Verse 7, Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there, so about 5,000 households represented. <clears throat> and Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. And they did the same with the fish. So great. Everybody there got a free lunch. Isn't that fantastic? Wonderful. Wonderful. You ever go to a seminar or a work thing, and they're like, hey, come on out. We'll give you a free lunch if you sit through this. Hey, how about that? Great. But here's the thing with Jesus' audience. In this community, in the Jewish community at this time, the majority of people were very, very poor and hungry. They were an oppressed people, oppressed by the Roman government. They were legitimately hungry. I'm not saying all 5,000 families were starving. I'm saying that hunger was a real need that really needed to be met. So Jesus sees the crowd. He says, how are we going to feed all these people? I'll show you how. He performs this miracle, performs this sign. And we're specifically told that everybody had all that they want. It was all-you-could-eat situation. 
When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces, the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 12 baskets full were left over. There were 12 disciples. I don't see that as a coincidence. And that's the story we heard in Sunday school. Did you go to Sunday school? Did you hear that story in Sunday school, right? Are you an old-timer like me where they had the flannel graph board, and there's a picture of Jesus and the baskets and the loaves and the fish? Does anybody remember that? Remember I did that? Yeah. Well, after the people, verse 14, saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside by himself. And so the people, they see this sign. And it's so, can we even put ourselves there to what that must have been like to see this happen in front of your eyes? You're not just reading about it. You're experiencing this miracle live in front of you. They say, this is the guy we've been waiting for. He's a prophet. He's at least a prophet. Maybe even the Messiah. We got to make this guy our new king. Because if he can do this with some fish and bread, just imagine what he can do to the Roman government. We got to make this guy our political king. Of course, Jesus said, no, that's not, that's not why I'm here. And he knew they intended to take him by force and say, you got to do this. Go be our king. And so he withdraws to a lonely place, to a mountainside. Then comes the passage I'm going to skip over, which is very dramatic. Jesus walking on water. He sends his disciples ahead of him across the lake. He joins them in the middle of the evening by walking over the water. You may have heard that one, right? Miraculous thing. I can't believe I'm glossing over it. You can read it for yourself. So the very next day, that's where I want to pick up. Verse 23. This is the very next day. When they, this is the same group that, that had followed Jesus the day before, the same group that received their free lunch. When they found Jesus, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And here's something that Jesus can do that none of us can. Jesus knew exactly why they were there. You and I, we can't determine what's motivating somebody. You, we can't determine what's going on in a person's heart. Why are they doing what they're doing? We can't tell what a person's intentions are. Not perfectly, but Jesus knows, and Jesus knew. Jesus answered, verse 26, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. I know why you're here. You want something to eat. Verse 27, do not work or pursue or seek after. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For in him God, the Father, has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? That's a great question. Jesus is saying, you do the work that God requires, you receive real food, real food. So they asked, well, what is this work? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. And in this moment, Jesus doesn't say, well, go do good works, go follow the Ten Commandments, go give to the poor, Go do all these things. No, not, not in this moment. In this moment, Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Jesus, of course, referring to himself. Believe in. Now, this is not the first time we've seen this terminology, believe in. You know, earlier in John chapter 3, John 3, 16, this well-known and well-beloved verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You go back to the original Greek, what John was doing here as he's writing this out is he's using bad grammar. He's creating this new terminology, this new idea of putting your belief in 
someone. Maybe a better way to think of it for us is trust. Have you said it to anyone before? Like, I believe in you. I believe in you. You don't just believe they exist, but I believe in you. And as you go through the Gospels, you see, you see this contrast created between believing in Jesus or believing in yourself. Believing in what Christ has accomplished for us or what we can do for ourselves. And so this contrast is created. And in this moment, Jesus says the work of God is to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. Verse 30, so they ask him, wait to get a load of this. They ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Guys, uh, you remember yesterday? You remember how impressed you were yesterday by that sign, so impressed that you wanted to make him king by force? Where, what's going on? Yeah, well, that was yesterday, right? What can you do for us now? And then it's so overt, and it's so ridiculous. They try to bait you. Look, look at this, look at this. Our ancestors, verse 31, ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're trying to bait him into, well, can you just do it again? I mean, back in the olden days, we saw a sign through Moses, and we got bread, and so how about bread again? Can we do bread again? These guys are fascinated, fixated on bread. Jesus said to them, and he's not, he's not what, they think they're a trap, they're going to fool Jesus? Okay, I'll do it again, right? What about the next day? Hey, we're not sure that you're the Messiah, we're not sure who you are, we're not sure that you're from God, we're not sure that we should believe in you. Can you make us lunch again? How long does this go on? How long does this go on? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I have told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. Verse 37, pay attention to this, okay? It says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Now, Jesus is going to hit this point again in this passage. You can only come to Jesus if the Father draws you to Jesus. If the Father draws you to Jesus... Jesus will not drive us away. Very important. For I have not come, this is verse 38. I need a larger print Bible, by the way. This is ridiculous. It's not that my eyes are getting bad. It's just that the print's getting smaller here, all right? <clears throat> all right, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in, there's that term again, believes in, believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day, in the time of resurrection. At this, the Jews began to grumble about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? I mean, who does this guy think he is? I mean, it's great that you can do this miracle with the bread and all this, but now you're saying that you've come down from heaven? And, and if I'm not mistaken, are you calling yourself the son of the father, as in Father God? Like, who is this guy? Isn't this Joe's kid? It's Joe and Mary. We know them. Like, 
who is he? And so they start grumbling among themselves. And he, really, listen, we can't fault them. This seems ridiculous. What are you talking about? You know, it's one thing for us to regard you as a prophet or a miracle worker, but now you're calling yourself the son of God that's come down from heaven? And so they start grumbling. Verse 43. Stop grumbling, Jesus says. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father... Again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Over 10 years of our church life together, I don't know how many times that I've asked you, those of you who are believers, those of you who are Christians, to lift up in prayer your lost loved ones, those who don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. Because as Christians, those of us who are Christians, we can do everything in our power to articulate the gospel, and we can attempt to make a case for Jesus and a case for the cross and a case for the gospel and all these things. But there is a limit to what we can accomplish. And it takes Father God. God draws people near to Jesus. And so I continue to encourage you, those of you who are Christians, to lift up your loved ones in prayer. In fact, let's pray right now. Father God, we have people that we love who don't yet know you as Savior, and we acknowledge our own limits. Father God, we pray for our lost loved ones, as well as our 60,000 neighbors right here in this community. We pray that you would draw them to your son, Jesus. This is something only you can do, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 46, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and died. So what Jesus is doing here is, you guys came to me, you're fixated on bread, you're obsessed with bread, let's talk about real bread, okay? Let's carry on this theme. I am the bread of life. Verse 50, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. And he's referring to himself. Now again, we've heard this before in John's gospel. Jesus so loved the world, everyone, not just the good people, not just the religious people. God so loved the world that this gift is available to everyone, which anyone may eat and not die. 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I'm the living bread. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh. So Jesus takes this, this, this whole concept of bread, and I am the real bread, and he gets more graphic and a bit more visceral. He says, this is my flesh. My flesh is this living bread, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, if I was one of the 12 disciples at this point, I may have said, hey, Jesus, you're starting to lose the crowd, Okay. You know, we're on board with this bread thing, and clearly you're making some kind of parallel. You're speaking figuratively, but now you're like, it seems very literal what you're saying here, Jesus, talking about eating your flesh. Of course, we have the benefit of retrospect. We go through the Gospels. We get to the Last Supper. We hear Jesus talk about his flesh as bread and his blood as real drink. And, of course, Jesus is talking about sacrificing his flesh and shedding his blood for us. But in this moment, he's being so graphic so you want us to eat your flesh? What is this? Jesus said to them, very truly, very <clears throat> truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. He is just doubling down on this. You need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood if you're going to have eternal life. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. By the way, he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. What's the response to this? Verse 60. On hearing it, on hearing this teaching, eat the flesh, drink the blood. What is this? On hearing it, many of disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before, ascend back up to heaven? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. And I think this is one of these statements that we miss so often when we read this passage, because Jesus does bring clarity here. He says, you think I'm talking literally? This flesh, this, is, this bread, this flesh, this counts for nothing. I'm talking to you about spiritual things. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Keep in mind who we're talking about here. This is Jesus. People left, stopped following Jesus. We're not talking about people leaving like uh, Tim Keller's church or Andy Stanley's church or some, you know, pick anybody. <laughs> we're not talking about that. We're talking about people leaving the ministry of Jesus. Why? Why do they leave? They didn't get what they wanted. Jesus, we came here because we're hungry. You're talking about eternal life. You're talking about drinking your blood. You're talking about, well, no, we're not here for that. We want something to eat. They left because they get, did not get what they wanted. You know, before the pandemic, uh, just before, there was a guy connected with our church, and uh, he just came in hot, came in hot, and was very appreciative and wanted to sign up for everything. And uh, was like very thankful of this church. He's like, you know, I found, you know, unsolicited kind of feedback that you get, which is great, you know, as a pastor. Thank you so much for this. And I finally found my church home and I finally found my church family and I'm so excited, blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, great. It's awesome to hear those kind of things, right? Unsolicited feedback. It's great when it's positive, right? All this, all this excitement that he had and then the pandemic happens and things shut down and he reaches out over email several times to say, listen, I, I know there's a pandemic, but you got to stay open. I just found you guys. You got to stay open, Right? I just found a church home. You've got to stay open. So let me know what I can do and if I can make arrangements to meet at a park or whatever it is. Okay, we'll keep you posted. We're doing our best. There's a lot to sort through here. So finally, we started having Bible studies again, like quietly, right? <laughs> Outside doing a Bible study. He's like, guess what? We're having Bible studies again. He's like, okay, fantastic. Do I have to wear a mask? I said, well, no, we'll be outside so you don't have to. It's just that I'm uncomfortable wearing a mask. Well, everybody's comfortable wearing it. Nobody wants to wear a mask. Does anybody want to wear a mask? I don't think so. No, we're all uncomfortable. So well, we'll no, we're outside, so you don't have to wear a mask. Oh, okay, okay. 
So we have the Bible study, and he doesn't show up. Okay. So then we could meet back in person again, have worship services. They said, hey, you know, you asked me to reach out to you specifically, let you know when things are happening. I'm reaching out to you specifically to let you know. We're back, baby. We're back. Fantastic. Do I have to wear a mask? I said, actually, no. We are requesting people wear masks, but we're not requiring it because we don't have the ability to require it, and I'm not turning anybody away. He said, well, no thanks. I'm going to find a different church where they don't wear masks. Okay. How does that sit with you? This is just how it is. And before we get all judgmental of this person, this is just how it is. If you don't get what you want, you can just leave and find what you want somewhere else. Why do people leave? Why did one-third, what about Archer? Why did one-third of people leave over mass policies? Yeah. Yes. Over, over uh, uh, gathering policies? Yeah. It's a weird time, the pandemic. I've heard that it's brought out the best in people, it brought out the worst in people, it also brought out the weird in people. You know, conspiracy theories run amok, people digging their heels in. And we had some people who were part of our congregation that were COVID deniers and they wanted their pastor to be a COVID denier as well. I was like, wait, I can't be, what are you, I'm not a scientist, what do you want from me, right? People got offended over our vaccine stance or lack thereof. You want me to make a statement about vaccines? I'm a pastor. I, don't, I barely graduated high school science. You want me to weigh in on vaccines? But if that's what you want from a church, you can find it. You'll find the church where they're all about pushing the vaccine or they're all anti the vaccine if that's, what, if, that's what you, if that's what you want. All kinds of people leave churches for all kinds of reasons. Some are valid, some are legit, some are bogus, some are ridiculous, and sometimes it's just tough to delineate. Well, is this a good reason or not? I, I don't know. People re- leave for all kinds of reasons. People leave because they don't get what they want. People leave because they don't have their expectations met. Some people have left our church because they don't trust in the leadership. And that's a big deal. If you don't have confidence in your leaders, then you can't follow their leading. That's all there is to it. And sometimes that lack of trust is warranted, and sometimes it's unwarranted. Either way, if you don't trust your leaders, then, then people will be inclined to leave. People have left our church because they disagree with the vision. As a church, we believe that it's our job to exist for the sake of of the lost, not just about doing christian stuff and just doing Bible studies, but we're here for the people who aren't already Christians, and some people disagree, and so they leave. Okay. Some people leave because they don't like me. Can you imagine someone not liking me? Uh, yeah, we can, we can imagine that, Josh. Well, they don't like my preaching. Some people leave because they want to have the Bible taught to them in a way that's more palatable to them. I don't do that. Some people leave because they don't like this building. I miss the old building. Do you really miss the old building? Do you really miss the old building? Maybe we're misremembering the old building, right? You ever go in the basement of the old building? No, we don't miss the old building. Some people left because they don't like the new people showing up. Can you imagine that? I don't like these people. Our church has changed. I like it when I was smaller. Some people left because they were told no. Had an idea of something they wanted to do, and that idea was like, well, the timing's not great, or yeah, it doesn't really fit our vision. Can we do something else instead? And they were told no. I said, well, forget it. I'm going. Some people left because they did not get their way. And I'm taking my ball, and I'm going home. <laughs> some people left, not just during the pandemic, but over their 10 years at the church, some people have left our church because they felt mistreated. 
And sometimes that sense of being mistreated, sometimes that's real or sometimes that's imagined. Either way, if you feel mistreated, you're going to leave. So many people have had bad church experiences, and that's why they leave a church. But I'll say to you this, if you think you've had bad church experiences, try being a pastor. I guarantee you'll have some bad church experiences. Some people have left our church out of embarrassment, which is really a shame. You know, they get caught doing something or they're not perfect all the time or they feel like, oh, I can't believe I showed this vulnerable side of myself or I can't believe I showed a side of myself that's not very Christian. You know, listen, we're all works in progress. That's, oh, I feel so sad. Don't leave because you're embarrassed, right? I've certainly messed up. Man, man, there are times I've messed up and have been embarrassed. Some people have left their church because they received correction and we're trying to live within God's boundaries and or for a leader in the church or a fellow church member to step and say, you know, I think, I think you're outside of God's boundaries. Let me bring you back in. Well, forget that. I'm just leaving. I'm going to go somewhere else. Some people left the church because they were in conflict with one of their fellow church members. Well, then why would you stay? Goodness gracious, if you're in conflict with a church member, just leave, right? Or you could engage in the ministry of reconciliation, but that's difficult. Why do that? Some people have left over that, and I could go on all day, but this is depressing, so let's stop somewhere, right? Goodness gracious. The ultimate reason why, and if you've asked this question, if you wonder, let me tell you, not just pandemic-related, but over the history of our church, why would people leave? Let me tell you why. Because the door is open, that's why. Because no one is obligated to be a member of this or any church. The door is open and it must remain open. And the great thing about open doors is people can go and people can come on in, right? And anybody that walked out can walk on back in. And people who have never been here before can walk back in because you're not obligated, right? I talked to you earlier in the series about this, how this works. I'm obligated to be your pastor, but you're not obligated to be a member of this church. And so people leave simply because they can. The door is open. So if you have asked me, and a few of you have asked me the question, but if you've just kind of wondered to yourself, why would people leave their church family? I appreciate the question, but I think it's the wrong question. The question is, why would anybody stay? Why would anybody stay in a situation where you're going to be in each other's lives and might be held accountable and might be corrected and might like have a fight with somebody or you might have your feelings hurt? Like, why would anybody stay? If you don't want to wear a mask and they're asking you to wear a mask and I'll just go somewhere else, why would anybody stay if you're not getting what you want? I mean, we're weird for staying, right? We're doing the counterintuitive thing by sticking with the church family. The question isn't why would anybody leave. The question is why why would you stay? You can walk out those doors, disconnect with all of us, and you can take Jesus with you. Did you know that? So why would anybody, why would anybody stay? Why would you stay? I'm going to give you this question. I don't need an answer. I don't want you to speak up. Why are you still here? Whether it's your first Sunday with us or not. You didn't leave yet, right? Why, why are you still here? Maybe you connected with us during the pandemic, maybe before. Why are you, why are you, why are you still here? You're not obligated to be. Why? why are you still here? Think on that. Maybe you feel like you've never had a reason to leave. Give it time. You will. Some kind of experience. It's like, well, this is difficult, and I don't know, or I could just disconnect. Why are you still here? Think on that. 
I'm not going to do that thing that some public speakers do. You know that thing where they ask the rhetorical question. I'm going to give you. Your, I'm going to tell you why you're still here. I don't know why you're still here, right? So I'm not going to answer that question. What I can tell you is why I'm still here. But before I can tell you that, I have to share something with you that none of you know except for my wife, is that I thought about leaving. During the pandemic, before I took my sabbatical, I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to leave Hope Community Church. Now, we all know what it's like to have those bad days at work. You know what that's like? We're like, oh, I'm quitting. I'm not going back there again. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I went through a period of time where I was just trying to figure out if I actually should be doing this. And this whole thing of like, whatever, whatever kind of line of work you end up in, whatever kind of ministry you're called to, whatever kind of thing you do, there's a period of time where you're trying to figure out, well, what is it I'm supposed to do? And sometimes you get that right, and sometimes you get that wrong. But time will tell, right? And so 10 years ago, 10 years plus, I thought, this is it. Let's plan a church. Let's do this thing. But then during the pandemic, complaints increased and criticisms increased and failures were all around me. I started to feel like, well, maybe, maybe I've discerned incorrectly. Maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I should be doing something else instead. Not, not, not that whole like feeling sorry for yourself thing that we do as human beings. You know, that whole, oh, I feel so sorry for myself. People are being mean. Not that whole thing. But really just questioning my call. Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And if you wonder why I went on sabbatical, that's why, to figure this out. Is this, is this really it? And why I decided, spoiler alert, is that I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. Thank you for that. Wasn't expecting that. Thank you for that. Let me tell you why I'm still here, even though I've had my fair share of rough experiences. Let me tell you why I'm still here. Because there are still 60,000 people in the really Interborough area, and so many of them don't yet know Jesus as their Savior. That's our work, and the work isn't finished yet, so I'm still here, right? We still have work to do. That's one of the reasons why I'm still here. Here's the other reason why. Where else would I go? And I'm not just talking about a career. I'm not just talking about a job. I'm like, where else would I go? You're my family. You're my family. And years ago, when our oldest daughter, Lily, cracked her head open and was rushed to the hospital and then taken by airplane, or <laughs> airplane, by helicopter over to CHOP, and we didn't know if she was going to live or die, we didn't know if she was permanently brain damaged, I reached out to my church family. Would you pray for us? Would you pray for us? Would you pray for us? And you did, and you showed up. You showed up, and you were there for our family. You were there for us. And when my dad died, very suddenly, aortic embolism, when he dropped dead, out of the blue, you were there. My church family, you were there for me. You prayed for me. You lifted me up. You covered my responsibilities. You took care of me. You were there for me. And when my mom died earlier this year, who did I turn to? My church family. You were here for me. You loved on me. You took care of our family. Because that's what families do. We take care of each other. And in a family environment, you might have situations that are uncomfortable. You may have times where it's like, ooh, not getting along. But guess what? You're family. And when you're family, you're there for each other regardless. Because you love. You love each other. And you've been there for me. I've read about the love of God, and I believe in the love of God, and I truly believe that He loves me, but I have felt His love most tangibly 
through you, through my church family, through this collective of broken and imperfect and struggling believers that we call Hope Community Church. I am still here because you are my family and I love you. Let's pray. Jesus, I think about what it must have been like to be there on that day, to see the crowds of people walk away, to see the crowds of people disappointed because they did not get what they wanted, and yet the 12, the 12 remained, the 12 remained. So, Father God, we acknowledge that as, as believers, those of us who are believers, we're, we're imperfect and we're we're struggling, but we do want to follow you, Jesus. We do want to live into what it means to be the ideal church, to be a, a family loving and caring for one another. And so, Father God, I pray that as we transition into a new season as a church, that you would strengthen this family unit. Allow us to love one another and show tangible signs of support to one another, especially now. Let's take care of each other. Let us grow in our relationship with you together. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.